AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today we're joined by Jim Clausey online. Welcome, Jim. It's good to have you back. Okay, and uh, we have Matt Kaiser here. How's it going, Welcome, Matt. Matt. It's good to see you. John Hogeboom. Here I am. And <laughs> John's here. And I'm Brian Ruxrode. And uh, on the first story, I guess what we'd like to do is talk a little bit about terminology and uh, what is really dark and what's not so dark. Just deep. <laughs> Just deep. Right. So um, there's been a couple interesting articles come out in the last week about the, the use of Tor and anonymizing systems and terms like the deep web and the dark mm -hmm. web and the surface web keep getting thrown around. And as I read these articles, I start getting a little bit annoyed because I know what my understanding of what these terms mean mm -hmm. is. And I'm not sure that everyone is quite on the same page. So I, here I am you know, trying to say, is this, is this true, is this false? And it says, well, it really depends on what the word you're using is. So what's the answer? So the answer is, I'm going to, I'm going to put my foot down and tell everybody. <laughs> We're um, going to define it for the internet at large. We're going to tell them what the dark web is. And from here on out, they're totally going to abide by it. So <laughs> let's just go ahead and do it. So, okay. and this is, this is based partly on what, um, a good article in Wired about the, the, the dark web mm -hmm. and some work that Trend Micro did and they used the, both the terms the deep web and the dark web, and they delineated them in particular ways. So for me, the dark web is a portion of the internet which can only be accessed through certain anonymizing systems like Tor, I2P, and Freenet. Now, these require a little bit of technical knowledge to set up. A proxy mm -hmm. connection has to be made into these networks. You can't just roll on up and access them, for most cases. There are other right. ways to get there, too, but we won't go too deep into that. So I guess I would like to just dig into this a little bit here. So the, the advantage there is that where it's hosted or who's hosting it has been anonymized. And the users accessing it have also been also anonymized. True. So it, it, saves, it saves them, the, I guess, it's, so it's intended to sort of get rid of some, I guess, some risk in some Risk, cases. attribution, right. whatever you want to call it. Whatever ties your identity to what you're doing. Okay. Um, but access to it is also not trivial. Right, you I can't mean, just you stumble across it. You have to install like another tool or something mm -hmm. in order to access it. Yeah. Whereas the deep web um, is commonly understood to be portions of the internet which are not indexed by search engines or easily accessible by most users. Right. So if I go and I throw something into Google, if I want to learn about laptops and I put in laptop, you know, that would be the surface web. That would be things that are already indexed and easily accessible. Now the deep web is not necessarily bad stuff. It could just be that Google or Bing hasn't gotten around to indexing it yet. Right. It could be that it was you know, never submitted to these engines. Maybe someone's taking pains to not ex you know, advertise the fact that a particular service is running somewhere. Well, the normal, uh, the normal scanning is based on where you point it to. Is that right? So it's, uh, if you don't give them a reference point, it's mm -hmm. not going to show up. Sure. And for, there, are, there are many sites that have large areas that might be considered deep web simply because they're not indexed. So for example, if you've got a shopping site and it's hundreds and thousands of pages, not every single one of those pages has a result in Google. So you can't get there from, mm -hmm. from Google. 
So it's technically deep web. It's just not indexed. You can't just search through it and find the content. Mm -hmm. So um, now, is it plausible to have a deep web search engine? I think that's a contradiction in terms, but I also think it's not entirely possible. I mean, if, if, I, if I turn your question a little bit on end and say, is it possible to index everything or mm -hmm. make everything that's considered deep web into surface web or indexable? Not always, mm. because you have to rely on, say, for example, if we're dealing with web servers, and I'm sort of going to limit this example. If you're dealing with web servers, mm -hmm. they may not give the search engines the cues they need in order to provide that indexing. Mm -hmm. You may have pages that are, you know, unless you sat there and tried to try every single URL on the site, you'd never find some of these URLs. This is true. And that's intentional. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't think that you would ever really have an effective, complete, deep web search engine. Some people might try to Certainly do that. Certainly not. No, I, I wouldn't expect necessarily to be complete. But okay, good point. So, the, I think most people's understanding of both the deep web and the dark web comes out of stories like the Silk Road bust, mm -hmm. where everyone's talking about it in the context of you know Ross Ulbricht and what he did, and you know how do I now get to this deep web or dark web? Um, and it's always in, in most cases it's tied into crime of some sort. Mm -hmm. Now. Um, the folks at Wired made a really good point. There's really not much on the dark web you can't find on the surface. Mm -hmm. I mean, all of these things are out there. There are people selling drugs in the regular web. There are mm -hmm. people you know, distributing illicit pornography on the, the surface mm -hmm. web. It's just that the technologies that the dark web provides allow you a certain amount of anonymity. Mm -hmm. And that's why people will gravitate to these systems because they'd like to continue to do what they're doing despite the fact that it's illegal. Mm -hmm. so. This is that anonymity that you're referring to that we've been discussing in some programs where sometimes it can be broken. Definitely, that and, that's a, and that's another good point, <laughs> is that you know, law enforcement is not completely without options when hunting down people who are right. using technologies like Tor. Mm -hmm. There are ways to still de-anonymize people. If that wasn't the case, we never would have arrested Ross Ulbricht because they mm -hmm. were able to tie his identity to his, his um, Dread Pirate Roberts pseudonym Mm -hmm. in, in on the Silk Road, so it's it's not a complete barrier to law enforcement. It does present certain challenges, mm -hmm. but it's not as if someone goes into the deep web and sets up a hidden service, and you know they're invisible to the police, and no one can touch them. Right. That's another misconception: is that people are like this. There's, there's this magical something that provides these these people the ability to do things without any sort of, you know, way of that law enforcement can respond. Okay. So someone comes up to you and says, you know, I was just browsing the gray web. What were they doing? They're looking at spider webs. <laughs> the, 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 the plug on the back of the monitor needs to be adjusted. Okay. I don't know. What's the gray web to you, Brian? Well, I, I had referred to deep web as, uh, I, I, what you referred to as a deep web, I've heard referred to as gray web. But okay. that doesn't necessarily mean it's a standard term. If you don't define it as a standard term, we can't use it. So it's surface web, deep web, dark web. And we have to write Webster's and make sure it's in the next edition so that it's completely clear to everybody. All right, that's good. You know, I'm, I'm very much an advocate of standardizing terms. Now, if only we could get CSI cyber to use terms our way. And uh, being able to, to do anything in any consistent way. If, you, if we're using terms in different ways, uh, that's always a problem. But that's just the engineer in me. <laughs> that, you know, that, that's a really good point. I, I do want to sidetrack a little bit and say that I'm, you know, I keep thinking of the intro to CSI Cyber where they've got that picture of the surface web and it's this tiny 
tip of the iceberg, and then they've got this deep web, Big deep and web. they're talking about the deep web as a scary yeah. thing. But I, what I think they're kind of they're conflating right. deep web with dark web and saying, you know, these things if they're the same, they're a heck of a lot scarier. Um, mm -hmm. It turns out that the size at least that people have measured of the Tor network mm -hmm. is is a tiny fraction of the total oh, yeah. sites on the net. I think they said yeah. in the Wired article, point zero three percent of the the giant surface web content. That's the the you know, approximate size of what's mm -hmm. inside of Tor. Well, and it's like you said, there's probably a good portion of that. Yeah, but we want them to get it right. There's even some overlap, which it doesn't necessarily account for. That's true. Some services yeah. are available in both. Yeah. So, but we always have to keep in mind that the television program is entertainment. Just like this program. <laughs> <laughs> we do want them we to get it right. Get it right. Okay, well, they'll leave it to us to get it right, and they'll just be entertaining. <laughs> Unlike us. I'm like, oh. So, John, here's your opportunity to be entertaining here. Oh, and, boy. Uh, just you set me up for uh, a fall, I guess, here. Right? Yes, well, <laughs> it's not gonna you know, sometimes it's a little confusing about whether the app is the problem or the operating system is the problem. Uh, yeah, well, in this case, it's more the app than the operating system, I think. Um, but uh, this was an interesting story. Uh, there's a vulnerability that was discovered in... Uh, the a special customized version by Samsung. Mm -hmm. So Samsung made a customized version of the SwiftKey uh, app, which is kind of like the uh, input method editor. You know that you could type on, uh, you know, you type your little keys, whatever mm -hmm. you're typing into uh, on an app. So it comes uh, installed by default on uh, a lot of the Samsung devices, like the Samsung Galaxy S6, the S5. I think there's like an S4 Mini or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, what they, this, these guys determined, I can't remember who actually did the research, um, they were able to determine that the way that this customized version does the update, so periodically, every whatever, at some regular interval, the app will go check to see from, the, from an authorized server, is there updates for this app? And if so, it'll automatically update it in the background. So you mm -hmm. don't really see it happening. It goes and gets like new, uh, language packs and things like that if it needs to. Um, what they determined though is the way this Samsung customized version was doing it has no encryption and um, I guess there's probably no code signing with this either as far as I can tell. So someone who's maybe at an unsecured Wi-Fi hotspot and is waiting for somebody with their phone to come into the coffee shop, they could do some kind of man-in-the-middle attack and when somebody goes to do an update they can respond and say, oh I've got the update for you. And what they were able to do as a proof of concept to say, you know, push an update mm -hmm. as part of one of the little language pack uh, updates. So it didn't really break the editor, but um, it installed in the phone. Um, the other interesting aspect is that app has unusually elevated privileges. So it doesn't, it has mm. access to pretty much all the features of the phone. So it doesn't even, you know, usually when you install an app, Android will, you know, operating system will prompt you, right. you know, this app wants to access your contacts, this one wants to access mm -hmm. your photos, whatever. It can bypass all of those kinds of protections. Um, so you could have some kind of, you know, uh, remote access device on there that's really doing a lot of monitoring, like monitoring mm -hmm. your SMS text messages and your location and right. um, any kind of microphone it could access and all that kind of stuff. So it potentially, somebody could you know, write a really interesting kind of uh, monitoring tool to, mm -hmm. to dump on there. Um, so that's the nutshell. As far as I'm aware, I think this is kind of proof of concept only. I don't know that anybody's actually 
using this as part of you know um, yeah, not that malicious activity either. yet. Um, the um, well, and I think the that uh, as you were describing this circumstances where you could actually perform the exploit are right. really kind of yeah it's unusual. Minimal. You know how many how often are you changing your language uh, on your keyboard? It would be a very rare circumstance, and you actually well, have to be in the. But it'll do it automatically, so you don't see it happening in the background. It's going to go try to do updates, and I don't know mm -hmm. what that interval is. But so if you wandered into an unsecured Wi-Fi and joined it, there's a potential that that could happen right. if there was a rogue actor also on that Wi-Fi trying to do mm -hmm. this kind of activity. Right. Otherwise, you're probably in pretty good straits if you're using you know trusted Wi-Fi of your own. You know, there's no malicious actors and whatnot in there. Uh, the guys at SwiftKey actually, um, they did put out a statement saying, you know, they have a version of this that's up in the App Store, their official version, not the Samsung customized version that doesn't have this vulnerability. Uh, so it really is something that was introduced as part of the customization the that they were doing. I don't know what that is uh, exactly. Mm -hmm. And I believe there's an update for that as well that is going to get pushed to people's phones, but I don't know what the time frame is of all that. Yeah, that's my But just something to well. be you know, aware of, I guess, uh, for users to know about. All right, good. It, it's kind of interesting that this, I think the, the key reason this flaw exists is that they're doing updates outside of the Google Play ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And they implemented right. this by themselves. If this had been regular updates through SwiftKey's official app, it would have been protected by the things that Google Play is doing. Right. Um, but they seem to have just decided we need to get it and let's just just get it without thinking about it? I don't know. Yeah, I guess that perhaps that's the real question is why we're, why break out of the system? Mm -hmm. right. Particularly if it's going to be a, you know, installed as, uh, by default on the device. So we may never know the answer to that. They okay. might rethink it in the future. <laughs> uh, right? I would think so. So, um, so if I understood correctly, you, you can install the SwiftKey, the normal app, does it replace the... the I'm not quite sure about that. I, didn't, okay. I, didn't, I don't know if you saw that in our I wasn't quite sure. They did say it's not possible to remove it, mm. which is a problem. <laughs> uh, so I don't know if installing the official would overwrite the one that was deployed okay. by Samsung or not. I'm not quite sure. All right, interesting. Yeah, All right, no, Jim, let's go to you. A, and uh, this is I guess, an article you know, that uh, it's just hard to get rid of old things. I know I tend oh, to be some time ago you know, now, kind of a pack rat uh, keeping everything, but it, it I don't think that's the theme that you wanted to bring across Last here. week brought this back to mind. Um, <laughs> the, the, basically, the, the point of the Registers article was there are some... We, we've talked a couple of times in the past uh, about the uh, browser providers, you know, uh, Windows, or, you know, Microsoft, Google, um, Mozilla are all um, in the process of phasing out SHA-1 um, you know, certificates, and they've got various time frames when they'll stop accepting certificates signed with SHA-1 because there are, uh, it's easy, it's relatively easy now to, to intentionally mm -hmm. create uh, collisions, um, but the the point of this this article was, you know, the the intent to do this is all well and good, but there are issues, um, you know, with trying to phase out any mm -hmm. older, uh, you know, crypto or hash algorithm, um, and a couple of the things that they point out are, you know, there are we we talk a lot of times about point-of-sale systems or industrial control systems that are still running 
embedded versions of XP, uh, and and even you know, even though support for XP is supposedly ended, unless you pay a lot of money, there are still a fair amount of systems out there running XP, mm -hmm. and XP really doesn't have uh, support for the newer hash algorithms. Um, there are versions of Android devices out there that are still running, um, you know, pre 2.3, even though we're now up at 5.1 or something. Um, and so, yeah, there are a lot of systems out there that have never been upgraded that don't necessarily have support for the newer hash algorithms. Um, and mm -hmm. so, you know, the idea of simply, you know, turning off the old ones is good in theory. In practice, it's going to break stuff. And, you know, how significant is it to you to, re to have the stuff that's broken still work? Uh, how much is it worth to you to upgrade those devices, replace those devices, if you can? Um, and, and one of the other things that occurred to me is, you know, everybody's talking, they're all talking about mm -hmm. moving away from SHA-1 to SHA-2. But NIST had their uh, um, mm -hmm. contest to define SHA-3 like two years ago. And nobody's talking about moving to the current you know, the current hash algorithm, which would be SHA-3 rather than SHA-2. So, you know, we're going to go through this again in mm -hmm. a few years. Because none of these, as much as we might like to think so, none of these crypto algorithms or hash algorithms were ever expected to secure things forever. Um, we know that computing power is going to increase, and it's, it's just a question of how long it's going to take you know, an adversary to crack any of it, you know, with the possible exception of one-time pads, those might last longer. But, you know, it's, it's a question of how long, you know, is, and is it worth it to the adversary to, mm -hmm. you know, to expend the effort to do it? Um, so none, none, none of these were ever really intended to last forever, but you know, knowing that we should have some plan in place to replace them on a, fairly regular basis with whatever is current as the flaws in the old one render it obsolete. Yeah, I agree. You know, there, I think there are a couple of flaws that have existed in previous assumption. One is the assumption that the computing power needed to break a crypto algorithm was based on having to pay for that compute power. I don't think it really anticipated botnets. So that was sort of a new revelation that came around that I think that aggravated a little bit. And uh, the other aspect that I think has been a uh, factor here is the, you know, we always kind of referred to it as just software. You just, you replace the software and uh, we didn't really anticipate how sticky that software would be. And uh, we're starting to see, you know, the XP systems that have been around for 10 years. And um, there's, you know, they're still not going away despite the fact that they've, uh, they don't even have support for them anymore. So I think uh, perfectly valid points here. I guess the other thing that I kind of reflect on is, uh, you know, we've dealt with sort of some similar things. And just to, as an analogy, um, 
I'm aware of at least one email provider that provides you know web-based email access, and we were looking at the transition from you know trying to phase out SSL in favor of TLS, and the uh, it, you know they they serve millions of customers and they still had like 12,000 customers that have browsers that weren't compatible with TLS. So you have to make a decision: do we you know <laughs> do we just abandon those customers and you know good luck figure out what you know how to fix your problem or do you still support the uh, the legacy protocol and it, and that's really where the decision becomes exactly. more complicated yeah. is that it's it's never a decision of everything everybody's transitioned over there's always some pocket that's left over that you have to decide to abandon hopefully I'm not yeah. going to hold my breath. So, uh, well, hopefully, by you know adding an extra step with SHA two, we'll get a, a real handle on this, and so the transition to SHA three will be easy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, don't hold your breath because it's probably going to take a little while. <laughs> so, Matt, let's go back to you, and I guess um, uh, well, John was talking a little bit about some uh, we'll call it bugs that occurred, and uh, I think that was actually poor implementation. So in this case, it looks like we have a bug to deal with. So it's not just one bug, um, it's four, and it, you may even consider it a new class of bugs. Mm -hmm. uh, so a research paper came out, and they're talking about cross-app resource access, which is sort of a, a, a long-winded way of saying doing things that are supposed to be sandboxed, but actually aren't. Mm. So in um, iOS and OS X, apps are sandboxed, which means they're not allowed to talk to each other in certain ways. Mm -hmm. And this provides, allows apps to do things like keep, you know, secure storage that's only accessible by a single app. Mm -hmm. um, and it turns out that there are several ways within these operating systems that you can actually bypass the restrictions that the sandbox has put in place. And they're all kind of interesting in their own unique way. Um, there's IPC interception, so IPC is inter-process communication. So in many systems, you've got one process that needs to talk to another, and there's very specific ways of doing it. Mm -hmm. um, it turns out that in these two, you can use web, web sockets. It's basically a way of saying, I'm going to make a network connection, but I'm going to make it back to something else running on the same box. All right. Now, if you're a malicious application, if you know that target app A is going to reserve port 3333, you can say, I'm port 3333 and that app will just connect to you. So mm -hmm. you've, you've put yourself in the middle of the process communication and whatever's passing forth that's supposed to be protected is no longer protected. Um, you've also got things like uh, container cracking, which is a little bit deeper. It's a, basically a way of, of setting yourself up. It's another way of getting there beforehand, before an app is supposed to be you know, setting up the things that it needs mm -hmm. and then reserving your own little spot within that and then you own that as well. Um, stealing passwords from the OSX keychain, again, if you're there first you have it's it's elevating the, the keychain is basically a secure storage within mm -hmm. these two operating systems and there are certain attributes within the keychain that if you get there first and reserve them when something gets written to them you have access to it mm. and apparently and this was a little bit concerning and I want to go back and reread the paper if you get there second you can still delete the keychain attributes and then wait for them to get repopulated <laughs> which I mean, I, I, maybe I'm misunderstanding a key point of that, but it seems silly. It just seems it does, silly. Well, it appears to be an oversight. Okay. <laughs> and then there's uh, the last one is, is schema hijacking. So some people, you know, if you, if you have a link that you've clicked and it says HTTP at the front, that gets handled by the operating system in a particular way. It says, that goes to my web browser. Or if you've got something else that's FTP or maybe um, torrent or something like that, it gets mm -hmm. handled by a specific app. 
Now, if you, again, register that handler beforehand and the app comes in, you kind of shim yourself into the man in the middle and you can access whatever the, those requests mm -hmm. are. So it all seems to be about the operating system and the sandbox is, is not protecting quite against people who get there first or apps that get there first. It doesn't walk through the full state process, it appears in some cases. I mean, if, if, if you're the first one there, that doesn't... <laughs> it doesn't necessarily gain you the, the give you the opportunity or the the privilege of taking the privileges. I guess is what it really comes down to. Right. Or perhaps it's actually the resources that are coming later that aren't doing a full set of checks to verify that what they're doing is uh, is actually protected. And that that may in fact be the part of the protocol that's missing here. So it, Apple has gone ahead and acknowledged that these bugs exist. They've put mm -hmm. out a partial patch, and they say that there are further incremental patches for the missing bits Good. coming soon. So they're, they're on top of it. Mm -hmm. um, this sort of you know sandbox defeating design stuff, I think we're going to keep seeing. I feel like we've seen it before in Android at least once and yeah, covered yeah. on the show. And I, it, this is the, the whole thing is if you, it, it's sort of interesting that maybe we haven't seen it as much within the PC space, or maybe it's not as exciting anymore, but we seem to see a lot more of these attacks within these sandbox zones in mobile operating systems. Yeah, me if I'm wrong. I think it's the amount of fre frequency. You know, uh, there have been all kinds of problems with sandboxes associated with Java. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I mean, we went through years and years of fixing that, and it's still fixing mm -hmm. those things. So mm -hmm. I, I think the uh, it's the same sort of you know, situation that we're seeing here. It's just that there are lots more scenarios, and I think it's a more complex environment now in comparison. So we anticipate seeing more of this as we, uh, as we continue forward. You know, this isn't exactly analogous, but when you, as you were talking through this, I couldn't help but think back to the sort of the, uh, I, I'm, I'm dating myself here, but we used to talk about covert channels. Oh, yeah. And this is in the context, in the context of, you don't hear much talk about covert channels, but in effect, these are sort of covert channels. I mean, it, it, in a sense, it, it's related to some sort of defect. But when we talk about covert channels, you know, the scenario was that it could be a completely isolated environment, but you might be able to commu communicate out through I some channel that was completely. So when you talked about, for example, reserving something, the analogy was back, you know, if you reserve access to a tape drive, you might not even be able to write to it, but if you reserve access to it, that may be something that's signal, that can be signaled outbound. That is, the, the fact that the tape drive is reserved is something that might be externally visible. And then you release it. And so you could actually do a coding thing where you, re you reserve it mm -hmm. and then release it, reserve it, release it. And it might be a really slow communications channel, but eventually stuff trickles out. I think sort of the more modern version, I'm getting way off your topic here, but the more modern version is perhaps using DNS as a means to communicate out where it's really a control channel, but it's got, it's got leaky spots in it. And so uh, it's one, of, one that uh, you know, some of the more sophisticated attacks tend to use DNS as a, a means to be able to communicate out or even communicate back into uh, into a otherwise closed environment. So yeah, continuing on that sidetrack, like right? Yeah. There is a, a piece of credit card malware, point uh, of sale, point right? Of sale, that was yeah. using DNS to exfiltrate the credit card information right. in an encoded mm -hmm. DNS and query. not in like a text query, which you'd expect to have no, a lot of content. No, it's part of the, yeah. the qualified domain, domain name. name. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a subdomain. Yeah. 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 So anyway, we got a little off to topic, but that, that notion, this is really kind of a, you know, maybe a subtle twist on the notion of covert channels. Okay, so uh, actually, 
I thought what we'd talk about next here is, uh, you know, in the news, there was a Polish airline that was uh, a victim of what was described as a DDoS attack. Now, I think the authorities in Poland are actually being a little protective around this. They haven't really said exactly what the circumstances were around the attack. Some of them have said, said it's, uh, I mean, even the articles have said it's an apparent uh, attack, but it's not really clear if it really was a denial of service attack or not. But what really caught my interest here is there was an article in Slash Gear where they were talking about this and how, um, you know, how U.S. planes could be susceptible. And uh, one of the th things that was mentioned was the uh, sort of the notion, it was a commentary from a, a presumably an expert on the topic that said, you know, so long as the flight plans are formatted correctly, there really isn't any authentication or validation of those flight plans. And uh, that was really, I think, the, perhaps the most significant aspect of this. That is, if that is true, then the questions become, could a flight plan, an altered flight plan, be issued to a plane that might, you know, I mean, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, you know, a plane's not going to fly without a flight plan. So if you deny them access to the flight plan, they're going to sit there on the ground and wait until they get a flight plan. And I think in the uh, workaround in this case was they actually printed them out and put them, you know, in paper form on the planes, which is, uh, I used to have to write them down listening to the radio from the, uh, the controller. But, you know, ultimately the question becomes, can you do an altered flight plan that might put the plane at risk? And that's, a, that's an interesting question. I think really there are checks in place that would, you know, normally under normal circumstances prevent things. Pretty much every flight over any land mass in the, in the, certainly in the United States and pretty much around the world is covered by radar now in an air traffic control system. That's there to basically keep planes separated and uh, also to help keep them separated from the ground. Any commercial flight is on an instrument flight plan, which means they have to be under air traffic control at all times. So uh, that would be sort of the, one of the uh, safety factors involved here. And then ultimately the pilot is still in charge of safety of the flight. And they would have charts to be able to say, you know, for example, if a flight plan tried to fly them at too low of an altitude, if they're paying attention to what they're doing uh, and not too complacent about it, they should be able to, uh, they should be, you know, verifying that if they get a, you know, an altitude direction or something like that, it would not uh, yeah, well, you you, know, fly you, them into the ground. You said covered most of that correctly. Of I mean, place, but, no, you know, I wanted to at least uh, open this up for uh, Jim's comments here because I know he and I both have so I an interest in this area. I'm down my flight plans by hand when the, you know, when I get cleared. But yeah, it, the, the pilot is ultimately responsible for the mm -hmm. safety of the flight so they should be should be you know paying attention to strange strange mm -hmm. routings strange altitudes um, and, and as you said if they're in contact you know if they're under radar uh, control then the controllers are going to start querying them mm -hmm. on the radio if they're doing things that are you know, not it, that the controllers don't expect. If they're going a direction they don't expect, or if they're at an altitude that the controllers don't expect, they will be contacting them on the radio and saying, "Hey, you know, you're, you're you've deviated. You know, go back to mm -hmm. where you should be." And then the pilot will be, "Well, I thought I was. Well, no. Then they'll negotiate it and figure out where they're supposed to be." Mm -hmm. um, the, one of the things, though, is there's talk of you know of improving air traffic control by doing more of it 
right. you know, not via voice on the radio, doing more of it automated. And, you know, so there is actually some legitimate concern in here. They ought to be doing some authentication of this. You know, they ought to be signing them and, and the equipment right. on the other end ought to be verifying that it was signed properly and that kind of stuff. And I think, I think we'll get there. It'll be a few years mm -hmm. um, before this is really much of an issue anyway. But yeah, I, as, as a pilot, you know, I'm taught to, you know, I, in my instrument charts, mm -hmm. there's a, there's our minimum altitudes on airways. There are minimum altitudes in sectors, you know, so it, it isn't like, I'd get an automated flight plan that told me to fly into a mountain and I wouldn't have lots of other red flags popping up saying, hey, wait a minute, you're not mm -hmm. supposed to be at that altitude. Yeah. And it and those kinds of issues are more of an are more of a concern when you're getting closer to the ground. At cruising altitudes, the concern might be if they put several planes, mm -hmm. you know, on on conflicting headings at the same altitude or something. But again, in those situations, you're supposed to be telling air traffic control, even even if you're not in radar coverage, you're supposed to be telling them, you know, what altitude you're at, what direction you're flying, when you're going to reach your next checkpoint. And they, I mean, the, you know, the, it goes all back to, there was a, the whole thing that generated the air traffic control system in the U.S. was a, an accident over the Grand Canyon, mm -hmm. I think it was in the late 50s, um, where two airliners, you know, collided and ended up in the deaths of, I don't know, 250, 300 people, something like that. And so a lot of checks and balances have been built into the system since then. And, and basically our air traffic control system was, this, you know, the template that the way the other air traffic control systems around the world have built their system up. So there are a lot of checks and balances built in there. And, you know, the controllers on the ground are talking to the pilots all the time. So I, I, I understand there are some issues. I don't think it's anything we need to panic about. Mm-hmm. I would agree. You know, I, I'm, but I'm glad you brought up the point that is the direction things are going. So I mentioned that the, uh, the the pilot has charts, but as time goes on, those charts are going to be online more so than they are even today. And so as they become more online, you need to be able to be sure that they're accurate. They haven't been altered in any way, along with the flight plans themselves. Um, you know, I would think you know all these communications are over the air. And so you would think that anything that's going over there that might be susceptible to, you know, some sort of uh, alternative <laughs> source would be authenticated. Or even jamming, you know. Right. Yeah, well, jamming's an issue as well that you'd have to be able to deal with and to have some an offline version of or the backup plan, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So uh, in any case, uh, even even today when you go and uh, see the plywoods, even in the most sophisticated planes, you'll see them with approach plates that are, you know, clipped onto the under the yoke so that they, uh, they will know what to do if all else fails. Um, I'm actually pretty uh, confident in their traffic control system 
even though it is severely manual, <laughs> it has a, a reasonable number of checks and controls on it and uh, a lot of learning yeah, from uh, bad experiences. This is, uh, <laughs> so, Brian Krebs had a <laughs> so okay, Jim. So let's uh, talk a little bit about proxies and uh, you know uh, I think some um, research done by an Austrian free. researcher, Christian Hashek, who actually posted some info on his blog as well. Um, you know there are lots of free proxies out there, and there are legitimate reasons why people might want to use a proxy, and we've talked about them on in on the show in the past. Um, but what the what uh, Christian Hashek did was he created a script to that uh, discovered a number of free proxy services, mm -hmm. found them on Google, and went out and did some testing against them, and uh, and discovered some interesting things that probably shouldn't be overly surprising. Um, the first thing he discovered was that only 45% of the ones that he found on Google were actually online at the time he did the testing. Yeah, uh, the but the the thing that he brought most attention to was the fact that of those that were mm -hmm. online, that's pretty small. Seventy-nine percent uh, were did not allow HTTPS, and so. You know, they're forcing the traffic through the proxy to use HTTP. They're forcing it to be in the clear, which allows the proxy, you know, whoever's hosting the proxy, to do things like sniff all your traffic, potentially steal your passwords, your credentials, mm -hmm. um, inspect, you know, but otherwise inspect the the traffic going through it. Uh, there were eight and a half percent that modified JavaScript that was traveling <laughs> back least. and forth. 16.6% mm -hmm. of them modified HTML that was going back and forth. Um, you know, so these could be used for, for various reasons. A, a couple of them, the JavaScript modification was supposedly benign, just things like error wow. messages. But you know the the proxy can be injecting ads. They can be potentially injecting malware. Um, so, it, you know, you you kind of get what you pay for mm -hmm. here. Uh, you know, it, it's you know the there are like I said there are legitimate reasons why folks might want to use them to avoid censorship in you know in their home <laughs> country or whatever. Yeah, and but. I guess you, know, you need to be aware of them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I guess the deeper and darker you to go, darker you go. There's no honor among thieves, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, 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 that's probably right. too derogatory and, you know, in the context my, here because it's not necessarily my cynical much, take on it, I mean, most free I think services the 45% is, is telling you know, not, it's hard to stay in business if you're not paying for it then you're the product without monetization to, you know, <laughs> that they're taking you know gathering data about you and selling it to somebody else otherwise how do they stay in business mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah 
Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Or potentially they're doing what the we've seen the Great Firewall or the Great Canon of China do, which is to take the proxy, manipulate the traffic going through it to create a DNOS botnet by injecting JavaScript, which is right. one of the things that was mentioned in this story. That's absolutely true, yeah. So to, the, um, what most of what Jim had described was somewhat you become the victim as a user, but it is possible for you to become an attacker against others. Mm -hmm. right. uh, something to be wary of as well. All right, interesting story. I was yeah. going to say, as an add-on, there's also research that came out this week. Um, a researcher going by the name Chloe did research on Tor exit nodes that were doing the same thing mm. um, under the, what they're calling the Bad Onions Project, yeah. which is also a pretty interesting read. I've had some bad onions before, too. <laughs> but I digress. So let's take a look at, look at the internet weather of the last week or so here. And uh, first item is scan probes on port 53413 UDP. Um, this actually is a, uh, and we've talked about this a number of times before, but it's been off, kind of off the uh, radar for a while. It's, uh, it's a backdoor that's in Netis routers. Netis routers are actually ones, I think they're made in China and sold under a couple of different brand names. They're much more popular in Asia. Um, and in the cases where we've seen uh, these devices compromised uh, as a part of a botnet, for example, um, they've been predominantly in China and India, and then there's still a smattering of them in other parts of the world. You can go, you know, on Amazon and buy one of these devices. So uh, it's not as if they're not available in other parts of the, of the world. It's just that they happen to be more popular in those places. I think they just don't have the brand name recognition in the United States, for example. In any case, most of the probes are from an address, a single address in the Netherlands. And, and as you can see in the, you know, the chart here over the last 60 days, there's probing activity going on all the time looking for this port. But, you know, we see over the last uh, week or so here, there's been uh, increased density in that probing activity. I'm not sure what's uh, really motivating that, but uh, certainly something to pay attention to. If you have one of these devices or actually any home router, I recommend um, investigating the status of that. Some uh, many other name brands, different backdoors, but a number, a number of other brands have backdoors in them that uh, or vulnerabilities that need to be patched. Uh, next item here is sources scanning on port 9101 UDP, and uh, this is this port is registered to uh, Bacala Director. Uh, but I don't think this has anything to do with that. It actually, and we talked about this last week, it is a, uh, it looks like a new BitTorrent network or at least a, uh, perhaps um, a, uh, maybe some shifting associated with a BitTorrent network. Now, I had speculated last week that it was related to port 17788 UDP activity, which is a uh, sort of a BitTorrent network that we've been tracking. And so I combined the two here uh, just so you could see the, uh, the relationship between the two. I thought maybe there was some transition going on. John was skeptical. John's probably right here. There hasn't been uh, really a transition from one port to the other uh, in terms of activity. And they do appear to have a different geographic timing. That is the, you know, the peak times between the two are in different places. So this appears to be a new BitTorrent network. And by the way, the, uh, the blue stuff here is the uh, 17788. Um, that, and we're looking at 180 days of, excuse me, 180 days of, of activity. So you can see how that activity is built up. And then we see much more recently over the last couple of few weeks, um, activity in the red here associated with 
Airport 9101, and uh, a real big surge in activity over the last few days here. So uh, it's grown significantly in terms of the amount of activity, and we're looking at the number of sources participating here. So uh, the number of sources is a pretty strong correlation about uh, the activities. Now, John, you and I were talking earlier today about the possibility, you know, we've seen botnets that have been used to run BitTorrent networks, and so they can share all kinds of uh, nefarious stuff, and the owners of those machines are, you know, aren't really aware of what's going on, and it becomes a, uh, a way to, um, you know, basically hide who the owners right. of that information is. Distribute malware, right. all kinds of things. I mean, you can go as far back as the old Storm botnet, which ran on the eDonkey right. protocol or whatever it was you know, way back when. So it's not a, a new concept, um, and it's possible that that's what's going on here, yeah. but um, well, it, I'm not it, quite I sure thought you, you, I, I thought you indicated that it looked like there might be some overlap in terms of the relationship. I also saw some indications in some of our analysis that there was a strong correlation between some of our botnet analysis and some of the, uh, the BitTorrent activity here. Uh, correlation in addresses. That we're oh, I didn't pick up on that specific correlation. I just was looking more at the what the info hashes were that they were right. trying to, and I can't really correspond them to, you know, the latest episode of Game of Thrones or things like that <laughs> that people would right. be oh, looking they, for. So they didn't correlate to any known or, or yeah, well, it's known info hashes for things right. that I don't know what they are. I can't. Right you know, uh, associated with anything. So, so in any case, if you see this activity on your network, uh, you might want to be a little suspicious of it. We haven't really found uh, anything that indicates for sure that it's malicious, but um, you, again, uh, BitTorrent activity on your devices, certainly if you haven't <laughs> planned on it, is a pretty strong indicator there might be a problem that you'd want to pay attention to. I thought you had something to say, Matt, so. <laughs> I, I think we, we've seen that it's, it's DHT, distributed hash table, traffic yes, that's yes. not that's not purely BitTorrent. there are other things that will use a similar protocol mm -hmm. and the 9101 port i think we've seen it in use in some cases with tor right and i believe okay. there is a dhg component to tor um, but it didn't it hasn't quite all clicked together from mm -hmm. that perspective yet okay so that's another all right. consideration another lead for uh further investigation so uh, next item here, scan probes on port 53 TCP that's uh, associated with DNS. Now, there's, there's probing activity taking place on this port regularly. And, you know, port 53 TCP, it's generally associated with zone transfers. That is, you know, most UDP, most DNS transactions take place on UDP. You know, you send it a packet, you get a packet answer, and that's all you need. Um, in the case of uh, where TCP is in use, it's when you need to kind of get a, a sort of a big uh, transfer in place and so this may be actually scanning around looking for um, device or DNS servers that are willing to do a zone transfer and that's a way you can you know kind of get some insight into the uh, the namespace that's on the internet um, I believe uh, most of this probing activity is associated with some addresses in China and uh, but I I don't actually have that note here so I'll need to double check on that but we have seen some sort of increased activity you can see down in the uh, in the more recent days, some other activity kind of hiding down in noise. So we've got this spiky activity and then sort of another party that's doing something a little farther down that's taking place. But in any case, uh, it's probably not a good idea to leave a zone transfer capability kind of open to the internet. You want to confine it to the uh, specific users that, um, that need that capability on your DNS servers. And that would typically be other DNS servers, right? It would be other DNS servers that uh, you're either facilitating or a part of your network. 
Um, or you might have, um, if there's a customer relationship, they may need to transfer their zone updates to, uh, to your DNS servers if you're a, a provider for that, uh, for that organization, right? Uh, next item, uh, looking at the top 10 most probed ports. Um, well, the other category wins this week. The, uh, we've been, uh, kind of, that's been jumping around a little bit. Uh, this one's, you know, kind of large today. So I took a look and uh, it looked like 12,980 other ports and protocols were associated with the other category in this case. Uh, that is relatively unusual. We typically see on the order of hundreds. And so uh, most likely what has happened here is there's some sort of you know, random activity going on uh, sort of behind the scenes. Either they're probing random ports, but more likely is the case is what we're seeing is some effects from uh, reflection attacks or something along those lines where the, uh, what we're really kind of seeing is ephemeral ports showing up as, uh, as target ports. That's, that's my guess on this. Um, in any case, uh, next on the list is port 135 TCP. We're going to take a little bit of a closer look at that one. It's, um, it's still consistent with a lot of the activity we've seen on port 135 over the number of weeks, but uh, increasing activity. Uh, port 80 TCP, that's web traffic. Port 443 TCP, that's um, uh, the SSL or TLS protected web traffic. And uh, that's perhaps looking for that deep web. Perhaps. <laughs> it's out there. So uh, next item is uh, port 23 TCP. We're going to look at that a little bit later on. Port 22 TCP uh, followed by 445 TCP. We're going to take a look at that later on as well. And uh, 1900 UDP, 8080 TCP, 1433 TCP, uh, which is Microsoft SQL database, and then 8 ICMP. You know, I've noticed that we haven't seen the remote desktop protocol on here lately. It's kind of been pushed down. In fact, it's actually uh, kind of way down in the list. Uh, I'm not sure why that might be the case. And, you know, VNC hardly ever shows up here. That's port 5900, yeah. 5901. Haven't seen too many of these uh, remote, um, you know, remote uh, scanning activities really getting into the top 10 list. So just a sort of a minor observation. Probes on port 135 TCP. This is a DC endpoint resolution. Um, it's not really used. And I mean, uh, uh, as broadly as it used to be, this would be most likely looking for some old, older stuff, I think. Uh, we're looking at the past 90 days of activity, and uh, I think we've actually reached a new high in terms of the amount of scanning activity on this port. Um, it's actually coming from a number of different address blocks and you know, several addresses in each of those blocks. They all come back to the same network. So, um, oh, yeah. so if you're just looking at the address registry, it might look like it's different organizations that are doing it, uh, but it all kind of comes back to the same place, or at least for the most part. Uh, there might be a little bit of other noise down, uh, buried down in there. So it's uh, you know on the order of about 200 plus addresses that uh, that have been identified here, but you can see over the last couple of days the uh, the amount of activity has really gone up. Um, relatively significantly it's uh, you know hundreds of millions of probes per hour on uh, and that's just from this system's point of view uh, looking at the top 10 most sources doing the probing port 23 TCP is way at the top of the list and uh, we'll take a look at that as I said earlier uh, followed by uh, we have some ICMP3 this is usually just kind of backscatter type type activity that's taking place uh, 445 TCP, we're going to look at a long-term trend associated with that. And then some other things that are uh, perhaps less interesting, although that port 17, 7, 8, 8 is showing up here still. 
and 1900 UDP still showing up here. So let's take a look at port 23 and um, we're looking at about 90 days of activity here and uh, we're not at a new high. In fact, we're still about, you know, maybe only half the way to the, uh, to the high. But uh, in terms of the number of sources that are doing the probing activity, it's quite a bit of sources. It's uh, up around uh, oh, 70 to 75,000 sources uh, that we're seeing in, in a typical hour. Uh, if we were to combine those all together, the number of addresses is probably quite a bit higher because it's kind of walking around the earth in a sense. Right. But the, uh, uh, this is invariably associated with um, you know, password guessing activities and uh, trying to get into uh, you know, IoT type devices. Uh, looking at port 445 TCP, you know, we've been tracking this for some time, the Conficker stuff, you know, activity going down over a long time, and uh, it looks like actually over the last few months here, the number of addresses they're probing on port 445 has been going upward. Uh, I don't have a clear explanation for that. Um, I don't think the Conficker worm is still spreading. In fact, I think that's pretty much gone. Uh, or, you know, it continues to decline. So there's something else going on out here that's sort of increasing the number of sources. And it's not a real subtle uh, number here that we're, you know, talking in terms of tens of thousands of source addresses uh, performing this activity. So uh, perhaps uh, some, uh, you know, practices have gotten a little bit lax around protecting uh, PCs in these environments. I don't know. Any theories on this? No theories at the moment. No theories at the moment. Okay, Needs more so, research. Yeah, <laughs> it certainly does. And the last item here I wanted to share with you is, um, you know, I, I think this was actually a little bit surprising to me. So uh, a colleague, a peer in the uh, industry research, uh, internet research, security research activities, uh, had has deployed a number of honeypots around the internet to help track uh, denial of service attacks. And uh, this is a case where um, you know you had a specific list of addresses. I did a geographic mapping of those addresses. Uh, just uh, for the over the last day or so, uh, this system had detected uh, at least 702, excuse me, 7,270 different targets of attacks. I think there were actually up around 8,000 or so attacks recorded. Uh, so, you know, somebody may have been attacked and then they came back and attacked them again later. But uh, 7,270 different addresses were targets of attack and the distribution of those attacks, well, it's pretty much everywhere. So, um, I, I thought that was kind of sobering <laughs> to see that many attacks in a given day. I think that was a pretty typical day, so uh, just a little tidbit. Do we know how many different botnets are involved in that? Don't know how many different botnets are involved in that, okay. but um, I, I suspect it's a number. It's, it's more than one. I bet. Yeah. <laughs> I suspect it's more than one. So I don't have the details on the specific tracking that's used here other than uh, it is based on um, some honey, not, honey net information. So that's our show for today. I'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. And you can find AT&T Threat Track on the AT&T Tech Channel. It's, um, uh, I think it's techchannel.att.com. And uh, it's also available on YouTube and on iTunes. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security. And I'd like to thank you, Jim. Thanks, John. Thanks, Matt. Good discussion today. I'm Brian Ricksrode. And we'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then, keep your network safe.
views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.